excited to kind of take this next step here in, in, in the curriculum and, and the direction we've gone. And if anybody has been following on social media, this is going to be our first of eight episodes. So what we're starting today is we're starting a mini series here to kind of have a continuation off of the coaches versus COVID-19 webinar that we, we did the past few weekends. And it's really two goals, guys, is, is goal number one is obviously to continue to raise money. If, if you've been following, we're about at, at about $162,000 right now. And our hope is that by the end of this, this eight-week program or this eight-week mini-series is that we can get to above 200000 which is just absolutely insane to even think about that. That's a number that we could possibly reach. So, you know, once again, everybody is, is in tough times right now, and we understand that. But if you're listening to these and you're enjoying these, uh, you know, continue to try to donate. And if you guys remember, that's at coachesversuscovid19.com. That's the, the numbers 19, coaches versus COVID19.com is where you can still follow along and, and get to the GoFundMe page as well. And then obviously we want to continue to bring knowledge um, at the best of our ability. And we have an unbelievable lineup through these eight weeks, starting off with an incredible one today that we're super excited about. So those, those are the main things. We want to make sure we keep that the important thing through these next eight weeks and continue to try to raise money the best, the best that we can. Um, one of the one of the bigger news that we're really really excited about is is for this eight week series here. Hawking Dynamics has has sponsored that, and obviously they were a huge huge integral part of the the original webinars and are continuing to lead the forefront of all of this, um, which is which is obviously incredibly selfless on their end. But um, for those of you who don't know what Hawking Dynamics is, it's a it's a company that that brings software and hardware solutions to human performance and uh, via force plates and, and, and so much more. And we're going to really dive into that. So I won't spend too much time talking about that right now. Um, but want to thank want to thank Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this mini series and, and everything they've they've done and continue to do throughout this throughout this next eight weeks. Um, for those of you who know Drake Berberet, who was also, like I said, an integral part in the 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 first the first webinars of this coaches versus COVID, Drake is going to be a co-host for these next eight episodes um, of the curriculum through this mini series, and and we're really really excited of that. Drake does a lot of things. Um, you know, if you follow Drake, he's got his his own own thing kind of going with with strength to uh, strength to speed, which has a, a website, an Instagram. Um, and he can kind of talk about that a little bit, but he's also the assistant to the director of basketball strength initiative at Illinois. So we're really excited to have Drake on a co-host. Drake, fired up to have you, man. Get my sound working here. Yeah, thanks, Matt, for having me on and uh, giving me the opportunity to come on and co-host this with you. Um, just want to thank everyone again that's donated to the Coaches vs. COVID-19 cause. Um, really, that event would not have been possible without the 35 speakers that we had on to that, that came on and donated their time specifically for the cause. Um, without them, uh, nobody really would have tuned in and listened and, and therefore donated to that, that platform. But $162,000 was what that final uh, first round was at. And that completely surpassed our goal of, of 30,000 initially. So um, truly incredible what we could do as a strength and conditioning community. And I uh, really can't thank everyone enough for, for doing that. Um, this podcast today is brought to you by uh, two sponsors. We have Thir Thirteen. They are a clothing brand. Um, they are founded for the creators, innovators, and the motivators, uh, for people who strive to make their mark on the world from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. Um, they have some cool clothing on their website here. They have uh, sweatshirts, sweatpants, shirts, uh, different gear. Pretty pretty cool logo, too. You guys should check them out at Thirteen. .com, that is T-H-U-R 
13en.com. Um, and our second sponsor here is Fruv. Um, this is there more than a drink. It has 15 servings of fruits and vegetables in 20 ounces of this Fruv drink. It meets the RDI of 12 vitamins and minerals. Um, and for athletes, that's extremely important because we know that uh, athletes need more vitamins and minerals every day um, than the normal person. Um, this comes in just 110 uh, to 150 calories per 20 ounces. And all the sugar is sourced from fruits. Um, no artificial sweeteners either. So that's really important when you're looking at, at a, a drink, you're looking for a punish your glycogen after a workout, or if you're just someone that doesn't like fruits and vegetables and you need an easy way to get those in each day. Um, great product by Fruv. Well done, Drake. Well done. All right. Uh, and then obviously, guys, we're, we're continuing to look for episode sponsors, and 100% and of those sponsorships go directly to the coaches versus COVID-19 account. Uh, so going into that that uh, that GoFundMe account that we've been fundraising money for the CDP. So anybody who's interested in that, please continue to reach out to us, and we obviously would love to have as many episode sponsors as possible. So without further ado, we got two just absolute legends on today. I'm so excited about this. I know me and my staff have been wanting to really talk about forest plates and, and learn more about them. Uh, and, and obviously, there's so much more to talk about than just forest plates themselves. But today, we have the CEO of Hawking Dynamics, Bennett Watson, okay? And then uh, of the, the head strength coach of the St. Louis Blues, Eric Renahan. So we're, we're just super excited to have you guys. And, and uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to the curriculum. Right on. Thanks. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to talking with you guys. Yeah. I appreciate you guys taking the time out. So, well, like I said, we want to keep this pretty simple, Ben. So I, I guess let's, let's start with you as far as, you know, the guy who kind of put this whole thing together and, and, and manages a company from the ground up here. Um, you know, if, if you were writing a force plate for dummies book, what, what would chapter one be? Where would you start if for someone who has no base knowledge, just kind of give us the bare bones here. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, very easy. Force plates are, are a pretty simple tool. They're not new. They've been around for a long time. Uh, essentially, the easiest way to think about a force plate is it's a, it's a scale. Right? It measures how much force is be, being produced through the ground. So the difference between a bathroom scale, digital bathroom scale, and a force plate, though, is obviously the price is a little bit different. Um, but the reason for that is the, the sampling rate, right? So the sensitivity and the sampling rate. So the sensors that are inside of a force plate, significantly more robust, um, more durable, higher ranges, different ranges, um, more complex electronics, and they sample at a much higher frequency, um, ideally, right? So our force plates, just as an example, they measure at 1,000 hertz. So that's a 1,000 samples every second. So as you move on the force plate, you're obviously your, your weight's not changing. However, that movement causes your force to change, right? So you perform a series of movements on, on top of a force plate. What a force plate should be able to do is basically tell you how your force is changing throughout those series of movements. So what, where that comes into play with S&C and with, with you know, training is if you standardize your tests, so if you standardize the movements that you measure on a force plate, the end result is you can actually standardize the output. So you can then start to measure how people perform certain movements, series of standardized tests, and then determine whether or not training, et cetera, are eliciting the changes that you're looking for. So you can measure so much with the force plate. It's an incredibly simple sort of fundamental core technology, but 
we're really just scratching the surface in terms of how that information can be applied. Eric being a, an awesome choice because Eric is, I think, at the forefront of what um, coaches are able to do with the information. But just to kind of take take this little basic intro a little bit further, uh, with our force plates and most force plates on the market, there's a number of different companies that make them. We have seven standard tests. The most common one is the counter movement jump. Uh, whether you use a jump mat, whether you use timing gates, whatever the case may be, measuring a vertical jump is, is applicable to every sport, um, regardless of whether or not it's, it, you know, jumping is involved in the sport, right? It's a nice analog to a series of muscle contractions that um, are replicated constantly in every sport. So counter movement jump is very simple. Athlete is standing still, they drop down and then they jump up. And the counter movement jump we can measure in our system 61 different variables. Uh, which is, to be honest, a, a much shorter list than we could do. Uh, we spend a lot of time kind of taking things out to try to simplify the whole process. Um, but you're able to then track and monitor certain variables that you measure over time to determine, again, whether or not changes are occurring, maybe fatigue is setting in. There's a lot of different things that could be measured. But from a very simple sort of explanation, that's kind of the core of it. Um, we also have a series of other standardized tests. But I think the real key for this technology to be used effectively in um, strength conditioning is that you do have a standardized series of tests. You're not just measuring anything arbitrarily just for the sake of it. The value really comes when you can start to look at changes over time. You have certain controls in place to ensure that your data is consistent, your data is valuable. Once you do that, if you do that effectively, you can really start to see patterns. You can start to see uh, different qualities and different types of athletes. And, and, you know, to be honest, a lot of these things are, are things that coaches already know about their athletes. You know, it's not like it's a, it's a mystery. But what's really nice about a force plate is it can really start to solidify um, and back up some of the things that you see as a coach and allow you to better communicate that information to other coaches, to athletes, to administrators um, across the board. You know, it really gives you some objective, solid feedback rather than just, hey, you look you look tired today, you look weak today, or um, you know, this, pro, this, this particular, you know, training block isn't working well for you. You know, I think, I think you need to change something up with the force plate. It allows us to be a lot more granular in those types of decisions so that you can be using objective data rather than just making assumptions. So to do that effectively, though, you really do need a few things. Um, you need, obviously, the software to, to take that data, to analyze that data, to report that data back. Um, and you need to ensure that, you know, you've got all of your sort of metrics, your, your your core values sorted out beforehand because it gives you a ton of information. So the biggest issue that we see is, you know, taking things out, right? We don't want to overwhelm a coach. You guys already are dealing with, you know, a lot of personalities, a lot of people. You have very little time. So our system is really built around this idea that we want to save coaches time, make their lives easier by providing that information really, really quickly in a really simple format that's digestible. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. But the nice thing about um, you know, I, I think us, my company, of course, is that we're pretty adaptable. You know, we, we really try to listen to what um, people like, what people don't like, and, and, and act accordingly. Um, all that being said, I think if there's a core technology that can be of value to a coach, I think the force plates are up there with, you know, VBT and some of the other things that are really commonly seen. Uh, we see force plates, you know, in all kinds of places. Five years ago, 10 years ago, when I started in biomechanics, um, force plates were really reserved for research labs. And so a lot of university teams would outsource testing, profiling, whatever, to the labs. And, and what we've tried to do is kind of get away from that model because I don't think it really provides the value. Um, I had an NHL coach, one of, my, one of my first customers, 
asked, if, you know, was explaining their workflow and they would collect their force plate data, they would collect their jumps on their athletes. This is an NHL team, send the data off to a sports scientist who would then process it for them. And then a couple of weeks later, they get the data back. And it's like, look, if you can't get the data at the point of data collection, it's, you know, you've lost a lot of the value, right? So um, recognizing that there were things that could be changed in the way that things traditionally went with force plates, we really tried to, to create something new. Um, so our, our, we have a mobile app, very, very quick, very easy to use, very simple. I'm home right now, otherwise I'd do some jumps for you guys, but um, it's incredibly easy to use. And I think that's one of those things, like with any type of technology, if it's not simple enough for, for anybody to pick up in 10 minutes, it's probably going to not, it's, it's probably not going to get used. Um, so Drake, Drake's a, a big force plate guy and Eric, obviously one of our, um, you know, I've known Eric for a long time and actually worked with him when he was at a different club um, using a different force plate. So, you know, it's, there's a, you know, a, a lot of really, really smart practitioners out there that really know what they're doing with this technology, but um, it doesn't just happen overnight, you know, so I think it's good to, to sort of get some good information out there. That was a really long-winded explanation, but I hope it was okay. So what fills the gap then, Ben, as far as if, if where we started all this, or I guess, you know, Ben or Eric, if where we started all this was with all these variables and sending this out to specifically sports scientists to digest and get back to you, one, what has closed that gap? Uh, and, and I guess, two, how do we, how do we go about doing that? Yeah. Eric, do you want to take this or? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really probably been the biggest iteration for guys like myself in terms of using technology is the accessibility of that technology in terms of the data and acquiring that data at the testing site. I think that's been the biggest thing. Um, you know, when I, when I work with my guys in the gym, my force plates are integrated into the training space. They have to be, uh, otherwise it, it's almost impossible for me to get work done in terms of testing because I'm a solo practitioner in our organization. Any sort of technology I use has to be integrated within our environment and it has to be done in a way that's going to impact the decision-making processes for the programming. Because if my guys are going to buy into doing something or wearing something, it has to really impact what we're going to be doing together. And so um, I think that's number one. Number two, I think really with the, the, the dashboard being cloud-based with Hawk and Dynamics, it's allowed me to set my plates up and put them in a situation where I can actually have them in front of the TV. And I, as my athletes are jumping, I, I'm jumping through a tablet, but my cloud is on the TV. So that data is instantly uh, displayed on that TV. So whether that's uh, for competition, whether that's to just go over the data instantly with the athlete, I mean, it, it provides me with a lot of flexibility to use the information very quickly and in many different ways. And I think, you know, if I look at it, you know, I, I do six different or six jumps separated by about a 20 second count in between. And that takes me about two minutes. And so in that two minutes, you know, I'm, I'm deciding once I see that information, am I going to continue along with the program prescription for that day? And, or am I going to change that prescription, whether that's regress it or modify it based off of other information? So I think it, you know, what it does is it provides you with the, the ability to kind of tease out some of these hidden bits of information that we just don't have access to, you know, it, you know, if it's a student athlete, you know, they were up late for finals, maybe they didn't sleep very well, they're not going to tell you that. They're still at the, at the lift or they're still at the session. With my guys, it might be a little bit different. They have families, um, you know, if they have young kids, 
and they didn't get uh, good sleep the night before, they're fatigued, this information can help tease out, or the, the data can help tease out some of that hidden information. So, um, you know, for me, I, I have lots of different um, things that I, I find beneficial coming from the plates, but really that instant feedback and the ability to make a quick audible in terms of what our plan was for that day and, and really use it to guide our decision-making processes has been the biggest impact on what we're doing. Yeah, I, I could add something to that as well. Thanks. Is that, uh, if that's all right. Um, yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things I think that's, uh, that's enabled this to happen for coaches like Eric and um, cause Eric can tell you the, the way he used to collect data was not the same as it is today uh, at all. I think what's happened is, you know, there's been a couple things, couple, a couple big contributors. One is the, the price of force plates has gone down pretty dramatically. Um, traditionally, your force plate setup, if you wanted to have bilateral force plates, so that's two force plates measuring each limb, which is what our, how our system works, you were looking at a minimum starting price of around 25 grand. So the number of teams, universities, clubs, private facilities that could afford that was pretty small, right? So that was a, an outlier for sure. And that was one of the big impediments to more, more adoption of force, of force plates in, um, you know, at clinics and, and teams. And so one of the things that we set out to do right away was like, we have to drop the price dramatically. And people always ask like, oh, why, you know, how, how are they so cheap? Like, you know, this must be too good to be true. And, and again, our force plates aren't, aren't free. They're not inexpensive, and I think I, I, I wish they were less expensive than they are. But um, the reality is that you know we saw the bigger market and realized, look, we can get into a lot more facilities. We can work with a lot more potential users and really try to democratize this data because we know the value. Those researchers know the value. It's why they use them in all their studies. Coaches can understand the value if they're able to use them at all. So we thought that look, if we, we reduce the price, we take some of that overhead out of it. Um, we're going to be able to reach a bigger audience. And it's definitely proven true. But in addition to that, we realized that, look, you know, there's no magic going on here. The, the calculations that are being run on this data are, are pretty simple. It's just math. Um, you can do it incorrectly very easily. Trust me, I've seen it enough times. I've done it myself enough times. But if you nail those parts of it and you can trust and you can publish kind of how, what your methods are, you kind of covered that right so there's no question is is this being done correctly well it's like well here's how it's being done if you have a better way show us we're i'd love to i'd love to see but at the end of the day this stuff is so well researched that i can pull a dozen papers down and say you know these are the methods that we use this is why we use them and this is how it all works and so i think the the last piece that's kind of allowed us to get to where we are today and i think where we're headed in the future is that the the information is much more accessible in terms of the education as to why um, this stuff is important, right? There's some incredible research being done all around the world. There's, there's a ton of really good researchers in the UK, and I can point to a number of different people. Um, you know, Jason Lake at, at Chichester is a, is a good friend. He's a part of the company. He's been an incredible resource for us. But um, Dr. Peter Mundy is one of our co-founders of our company, and I talked to him from, you know, right out of the gate and just said, look, you know, how should we do this? And he basically emphasized, look, we need to explain this information to people. It's not overly complicated, but Traditionally, I think researchers like to be the gatekeepers in some ways, and not every researcher, obviously, but um, there's something about kind of possessing that secret knowledge, but at the end of the day, it's really not very, it's not that complicated. So we wanted to kind of take the, take the reins on that a little bit and say, look, this is not, you don't have to overcomplicate this stuff. You want to start with four or five things that you measure and you look at, you can do that. You know, our software allows you to do that. There's other softwares that allow you to do that as well. 
So I'm not suggesting that this is like our doing at all. I think really the the culture has shifted a lot. Coaches are eager for better information. I think VBT is a big part of that. When when that became widely used and, and widely accessible, people got much more interested in kind of some of the science behind different lifts, um, why athletes move more effectively in certain ways. Certain athletes were better at certain things on the field. Can we measure that in the weight room beyond sets and reps, that kind of thing? It really shifted in the last five years. And we've done the best we can to sort of stay ahead of that. And a big part of that now is really ensuring that we provide information. Eric would be an outlier because Eric has been doing this for a long, long time. So he's not really one of those potential users, but um, you know, he doesn't need all of that info to be fed to him. But I think for us, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give people the information, make it accessible to them so that it's not intimidating. You know, this, just because we're talking about physics doesn't mean it's hard to understand. Uh, Matt, your presentation for, for Coaches versus COVID was, was excellent because you kind of, you, you just went through it in a very understandable way. Um, whereas the tendency in research can be to kind of, you know, show, to show off a little bit, hey, look how much I know, right? And I think there's so much good work being done, especially with um, the guys at Salford in, in the UK. Um, some of these papers, they're just so accessible. I can read it and just, it makes sense to me. I'm not, it's not confusing. It's not trying to be overly wordy or overly complex. It's really pretty basic. And there's a lot of really good research on on force plates and, and more than just force, but and how that relates to certain training um, techniques and, and programs. And, and a lot of that research, I think, is really driving um, a lot of the shift that we're seeing. I think that the simplification of, of what you're talking about, Ben, is, I mean, f five years ago, I wouldn't even have been interested in having this conversation just because it was, like you said, the, the only place I could have potentially learned about force plates would have been via these research papers and documents and maybe going and visiting my buddies at Michigan and borrowing theirs for a little bit. But simplification and, 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 and where we're going is what drives our industry. I think it's, it's awesome. Um, Eric, uh, you, you got into this a little bit, but as far as the parameters that you measure for readiness, are those the same parameters and variables that you're looking at when it comes to performance enhancement from a standpoint of, I'm, I, let's say I'm, I'm looking at this guy's chronic deficiency and I've seen he has this chronic deficiency. When you are talking about all of the 61 variables that Ben's talking about, are, are those variables, are, do, those, do those coexist or is it like I'm pulling data from complete different places? What, what is your, I guess, what is, what is the system that you use for that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I actually have, so I'm using a similar test. So for my performance enhancement, um, you know, my general, we call our, our healthy athlete classifications. Uh, I'm using the counter movement jump. And uh, for my readiness, I'm using what we call a counter movement rebound jump. So the counter movement rebound jump is basically a modified version of a drop jump. So I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of uh, very elite hockey players and very skilled hockey players but not great athletes off the ice and so when we do drop jumps and we're doing things that they have to land and really control that landing or, or be ballistic off of their landing we're, we're a lot of times we're flirting with disaster so in order for us to kind of use that same concept of of the drop jump and and try to identify some readiness uh, metrics and some changes in, in what they're doing we, we shifted our mindsets to use that counter movement rebound because the counter movement rebound jump gives you similar data points. It, but the benefit of that jump is that it's a, it's self-limiting. So the athletes aren't required to land from a specific set height. The counter, their initial counter movement jump dictates their landing distances. So it's a much easier self-limiting test for our athletes. 
particularly those athletes that don't feel comfortable landing from specific heights or, or ones that have potential issues that uh, are limiting them from landing. So that counter movement rebound jump is what we're using. The nice thing about that is that from the initial counter movement, I can still get some of the variables that I'm collecting in my general healthy athlete classifications. But then from that rebound, I'm getting the, the readiness variables that we're looking for in terms of RSI mod, stiffness, RFD, and some of those other variables that you're collecting off of that, that rebound. So I use that. Um, that's the test that I'm using on our, well, our game days. So we're using that um, to identify whether we want to make a shift in, in our warm-up for our athletes. So I have we dress 23 players for a hockey game, and I have about 11 of, of those players that do that counter-movement rebound jump on game nights, pre-game. Pre and so I, I would say, on average, I'm, I'm probably making a shift to our warm-up uh, with about 40% of that group. So four out of 10 guys, I'm typically making a, a change to their warm-up for them. Um, now, it's important to understand when I do that shift, these guys are bought into that. They're, they're voluntarily doing this. It's not a mandated test. Um, these guys are looking for any sort of edge that they can to perform well. We, because we're, our season is, is very game heavy, I mean, the bulk of our training load and the bulk of our stress in, in season comes from games, they're looking to really be as effective as they can. And um, so these guys are doing this voluntarily. Now, when we do these, um, we make these shifts in the warm-up, you know, we're doing different things to try to stimulate, and, and most of the time it's to uptick the nervous system. So, you know, we're doing different things. Like we're obviously, I like having guys lift. Um, our culture here is really geared around lifts and, uh, you know, pr pr primarily barbell-based lifts. So we're, you know, guys are squatting heavy. Um, they'll do one or two sets of a two-rep scheme, and that load is um, what we try to get them up to is, is one set of their highest load from their off-season percentages. So we really are trying to put them under some significant load on game nights to try to stimulate that nervous system. Uh, we will incorporate some some ballistic work, um, ground ground reaction force type of work. Um, you know, we're using scent and different. You know, we're do, we're doing different things to try to really uptick that nervous system. Uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, we have one player that's ultra bought into what we do, and he's probably one of our, our our better players on the team. But he's always on that kind of other end of that inverted U. So he's overexcited. It often takes him six, seven shifts. And, and, and depending on the team, maybe a whole period for him to kind of calm down and, and start the game on time. And so, you know, for him, we know that we need to start to try to down tick his nervous system a little bit. So we're doing that through um, thermotherapy. You know, he's a guy, we'll, we'll have him go in the sauna. We'll have him do a couple of things that are going to um, still prep him, but not, uh, not increase to his level of stress. So I think it's been a big benefit to us. We started doing that last year, and, um, you know, we've carried that over to this season. So we do get some good variables from that. With the general profiling or the general classifications, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate probably for the last 10 to 11 years, um, you know, been, been fortunate to really have access to force plates in the team setting. And, you know, I've, I've grown, you know, in many different ways uh, off of that information. And, you know, one of the things that I have now is, a very um, deep database of information to, to work through in terms of what variables we're looking at on the force plates and, and how our prescriptions are actually being affected by, um, or how those variables are being affected by our prescriptions. So the nice thing about that is it's actually probably 
made my programming a lot more Spartan because we've gotten rid of a lot of things that just weren't showing to make any real impact on our athletes. So um, the nice thing about having a, a system like Hawken right now is that I can go through that data and I can quickly look at, you know, if I have an athlete and I tell the athlete, we're going to front squat, it's going to make your breaking rate of force development go up. That's going to in turn make your first step quickness improve. And we're going to get you a little bit better at closing gaps and, and, and taking off from dead stops. We're going to, you know, we want to make sure that the language we're using translates over to the sport. So when we talk about that and we go through our prescriptions, if our prescriptions weren't making a change in that, in that specific variable, we need to either go back and, and decide was it the right prescription or was my dosing scheme off? If it was the right prescription and we need to tweak our dosing scheme, we can do that. If our dosing, dosing scheme was on point and our prescription was wrong, then we need to go back and we need to remove that exercise from our library. And so that's the nice thing right now. We're, I'm in a, in a situation where over the last 10 years, we've been able to fine tune not only the exercise prescription for certain variables, but also the dosing scheme and the loading scheme. Because I think that's key. If we know if our, you know, if we get a, be, a, a the best effect on say, breaking rate of force development using a certain exercise and a three rep scheme in a certain percentage, we can go right to that as soon as we see that that becomes the primary need. So we don't have to waste time trying to figure out what we're gonna do. So that's the nice thing about having the software, um, you know, house all that information for us. But again, like I said earlier, the best thing about that is that it's, it's instant. It's right there as soon as I test. So we can go through and say, all right, hey, we're front squatting today. This is why you see that variable stayed the same. Let's go. And so it gets guys on, it keeps guys on track. It, it keeps us accountable to the athlete, but also holds the athlete accountable to what that program is asking them to do. So it's an, it, I think it's, it's certainly. I think we lost here. I guess. Can you hear me? Yeah. You just cut out, you cut out a couple of times. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's been a lot of trial and error to get to where we're at, but I think at the end of the day, you know, I feel very confident with looking at these uh, bits of information and really going through and saying, okay, this is why we're doing what we're doing because we can monitor and measure the impact of our prescriptions using the technology. As, as you're looking at those prescriptions, Eric, I, I guess one thing that we are very conscious of here is as, as as our guys progress through our program, they eventually work to what we call a deficiency specific program to where we, we measure our, our kind of cheap way of doing force plates. And we say, Hey, this guy is very elastically deficient. This guy is muscular strength deficient, whatever it may be. But the thing that we're super conscious of and, and, and we'd be weary of is, is never focusing so much on that deficiency that we lose their strength. That, that what makes them such an elite athlete we, we, we train so much the other side of the spectrum and we stop training the thing that they're so good at and they lose what makes them so special. I guess, what is, what is some advice from your, from your end of the spectrum for that? Or, or what are you doing specifically even with the force plate, plate data to make sure that a, what makes an athlete so special, he doesn't lose that as you're trying to correct that, that deficiency? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a perfectly uh, said uh, description of what we're trying to continually get better at. I think, you know, if I look at, if I look at the athletes that I'm working with, you know, they are elite because of the way they move. They are elite because of their ability and their skill sets. And so we, you know, we understand these inherent strengths that these are guys, these guys are coming in with. If we can use our force plates to, to identify what those, those inherent strengths and those inherent abilities are, we can more effectively 
manage the decay of the uh, of loss in terms of those strengths during the season. So we want to identify where they're strong. Now, one of the nice things about having um, the information instantly provided to you and scored appropriately is you can unpackage the entire force tracing into certain phases, but you can also unpackage that force tracing into specific variables. And so you can not only look at, you know, what what's their elite or what's elite, right? What are your, you know, if you're looking at, uh, at, at whiteouts, for example, who are your elite whiteouts? What are their variables? Okay, you can identify those. But if you unpackage that force tracing, you can also identify where they're weakest and then look at the relationship between their extreme strengths and their weaker variables. And then you can start to understand more effectively where you're going to direct your prescriptions. So if you want to identify where they're strong and you want to keep that strength, you can prioritize that. But then if you know where they're weakest, you can understand what part of the tracing that's coming from, what phase of the movement pattern or strategy does that come from, and how can I identify that specifically to address that through prescriptions and programming. And so that's that's the nice thing about having that information. You can you can score that information against your your entire group, um, which we do. We do that from, from the health perspective. You know, we have a very, you know, like I said earlier, I have a very deep database of information, but I also have a very deep database of injury history. So history of our athletes look at what their uh, profiles look like during time of injury and, and pre-injury. And so if those were non-contact soft tissue types of injuries, we could go back and see why that emerging pattern became the pattern that we ended up uh, experiencing. So we look at it from a, a health perspective, so against our entire database, but then we want to look at, at the uh, preferential success within the specific positions. So what does an elite defenseman look like? What does an elite centerman and an elite winger and an elite goalie look like physically? And how do they perform? And, and what strategy do they take to create these outputs? So what we want to understand is, can we score that athlete two ways? Can we score them against the database so we can understand what their health and their emerging potential patterns are going to be like and we can manage that? And then how can we make them more elite in terms of their output and their, their physical characteristics that they need to be successful in their position? So I think that you know unpackaging that data and unpackaging those force tracings allows you to uh, to keep the strengths where they are. Right? You can you can dial that. Data. We lost him again. Right? Out in the woods, look at him. He's, he's got. <laughs> if he doesn't he's do things very smoothly. You, so, yeah. <laughs> can you guys, guys hear me? You, you dropped can, out yeah. again. Wow. Oh. Sorry, boys. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're clear. Not much, not much else to say besides, can you hear me now? After someone's like, oh, you're cutting out, man. Yeah, sorry about that. Great. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, like, if you if you look at it, you can, you can keep that strength where it is. You can squat a guy and keep that value up there. But if a guy's not smooth, he, he needs to do things for, you know, create more force for a longer period of time then you can identify that and then you can make that a priority as well. And you can make your prescription directed right on that variable, which is going to translate over to you, to the sport. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm just touch on that briefly. I think Matt, that was an awesome question and Eric obviously nailed it, but um, just something to think about just kind of circling back to the beginning is, you know, force plates tell us, right. If you're doing counter movement jump, just as the, the most obvious example, we can tell how high you jump, right. It's more accurate than a, than a, contact mat, um, jump mat, contact grid, whatever. Um, it's more accurate because we're not, we don't care when you land. We're not taking time in the air to determine how high you jumped. It's just not an accurate way to do it. We're also not determining 
um, how much you reached on a vertex, for example, which again is not accurate. So you know, I love, I love these uh, these these stats that I see after the combines, and it's like, oh, he has a 43 inch vertical. It's like, no, he doesn't. Like, no. I mean, a three step vertical, maybe, maybe. But a standing vertical jump, no, but no, that's just not, that's not right. Um, I can tell you right now, having tested a lot of NFL players, there's very few that can jump 40, 40 inches. But that being said, we can tell how you jump, right? So that's the output. What the force plates give us that you can't get from a jump mat, that you can't get from some of this other technology, and that's not the belittle jump mats or anything like that. I think those are really, really good tools. Um, they get you in the process of testing. They can help you build kind of a culture around uh, objective data or as objective as you can get. And I think it's really important that that's established before somebody starts with force plates. However, force plates allow us to tell them, tell us how an athlete got to that output, right? So we don't just see how high you jump, but we see how you jump. We can tell what, what, you know, where your strengths are in terms of uh, different phases of the jump, like Eric was talking about. So we can tell if you're an eccentric dominant, you're, you're, you're weak eccentrically, but you're, you know, you're, you're strong, in the concentric phase, you get a, a really big stretch, so you're maybe taking a little bit longer to dip down. Um, as a result, you can still jump really high, but you, you know, as a you know, linebacker or something, you might need to be a little bit quicker. So then we can start to tighten up training programs, um, et cetera, to see if we can't modify that a little bit without changing the cueing to the jump, right? Because that's really important. If you're really trying to look at qualities of athletes, cueing can change everything, right? If I tell somebody who's jumping slow, but jumping really high, hey, speed up the pace, go quicker. All right? Internally, we do that all the time because we just experiment. If I adjust my strategy, how does that change the results? Right? And you'll find that sweet spot. Now, these athletes that you guys are all working with are elite. What makes them elite is their ability to adapt to change, right? to, to adapt strategy to better fit the requirement of whatever it is, whatever the task is that they're doing. So the good athletes, the strong athletes will figure out how to jump higher, how to, how to jump more effectively. That's just what makes them elite. It's one of the things that makes them elite. But we have the ability over time, and this is what Eric was touching on as well, to see how much they're changing over that time, right? So we're not just looking at, you know, I'm not taking an Excel sheet and writing down, he jumped this high or she jumped this high. This is how much, you know, force was produced during this phase. It does it all for you. And I think that's the real key is that we're also introducing statistical analysis into our software. And I think a lot of other systems are doing this as well. Because the value from this data comes from the ability to look at the change over time. As coaches, you guys know what training program was active in, in February of 2020. You know what you know what training block it was or however you describe your programming. You understand what was happening during that time. And if I can go and dial in and look at an athlete and see how they performed in their vertical jump, you know, maybe they jumped 15, maybe they jumped 25 times during that month. You know, again, that's totally arbitrary numbers. But I can see, was there a pattern emerging? Was this, programming, was this program having the right effect on them? Not just in their output, right? Because again, athletes, even if they're injured, will find a way to get to that output. It's really when they start to change it dramatically that you might want to say, hey, something's going on here. You know, if we just look at the jump height, it's not going to tell us that story. You know, we can look at asymmetry. We can look at um, phase times. That's a really easy one. How, how long are they getting through that, that process, that jump? Are they more, getting more efficient? Modified RSI is a great, great metric for that, as Eric mentioned. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can kind of dig into with, with something as simple as a vertical jump. And it sounds so basic that really the value comes when you start to look at it over time. Um, and that's, you know, it, it can be really, really useful because it just allows you to save so much time for yourself if 
you don't need to kind of go into this subjective process of how's this athlete doing today they're maybe not being honest or they're, they don't want to talk about it or they maybe don't even know right you know you're dealing with a 20 year old kid when i was 20 forget about it it was a nightmare you know i wasn't talking to anybody <laughs> so i think the idea that this data can help you inform and, and make decisions about that without having to go through sort of a a long trial and error process is really, really useful at the college setting, especially. So we have a lot of universities that test all their teams, um, not just jumping teams, but I hope that made sense. No, that's awesome. Can you unpack RSI for us, Ben? That's a, it's a buzzword, it's all over the place. I think it's, it's especially yeah. a forced place. People are always referring to RSI. Yeah, so there's, there's so, it's interesting you should, you should ask. So there's, <laughs> there's a couple things with RSI. There's, there's sort of your traditional RSI, which you can measure with the jump mat. All it looks at is flight time of the jumps, so the time in the air over time on the ground, right? So if you're doing a counter movement jump and you want to look at RSI for a counter movement jump, it's it's time in the air, how, how long they spent in the air over how much time they actually took to perform the movement, right? So we started at when they actually begin the movement. Traditionally, the test for RSI was the drop jump. The drop jump is, is a really interesting test. Um, Eric touched on a little bit with the rebound. The drop jump is, is basically you set the height of a box, right? You have the athlete drop down and the objective of the drop jump versus the depth jump is as little time in the ground, as much time in the air. You wanna get, you wanna measure reactivity. So it's reactive strength index. So the idea of it is higher RSI equals more reactive athlete. Modified RSI, which I think is a better value uh, variable, I should say. Modified RSI says, all right, well, knowing what we know about flight time not being really a reliable measure because if an athlete tucks their legs, they're gonna get a bigger flight time and a bigger jump height, higher RSI, but they didn't actually jump any higher, they didn't spend more time in the air, they just kind of faked it, uh, which you see all the time. We see it all the time athletes jump and they like instinctively tuck their legs and like, that's not gonna help you. <laughs> we literally, you could literally land off the force legs, we're still gonna be able to measure how high you go off basic physics. But uh, modified RSI instead says, all right, we're not gonna look at flight time, we're gonna look at jump height in meters and we're gonna we're gonna put that um, over contact time, right? So pretty simple, same exact thing. Um, but modified RSI, you'll typically see smaller numbers, right? The numbers will come down a little bit. Um, I think I said that right. Flight time over, yeah, jump height over contact time. So uh, I like modified RSI personally. I just think it's a better uh, better value. It's a little bit more reliable. Again, you kind of te you kind of eliminate the potential for user error there, um, but. You can also do you can also use RSI with the jump mat, for example. I still think it's a really useful value. Um, very easy, very easy to understand. Higher is better, right? So you see things two two and up is pretty good, and then you get athletes around three, uh, a value of three for RSI. That's when you start to get into the elites, and the highest we've ever seen on our system is a four and a half, uh, which is completely unheard of. But that guy is an absolute animal. So <laughs> basketball guy. Yeah, that's that's it's something that I don't do a great job of of because I've had to digest RSI into how we can utilize it and and as I talked about our deficiency specific stuff, we'll take we've more or less isolated the RSI into really three main positions of just saying like we want to measure elasticity, we want to measure strength, and then we want to overload the tendon to measure that. So we'll we'll more or less do a static jump, we'll do a counter movement jump, and then we'll do a, a drop jump. And we'll, we'll measure on a jump mat, we'll measure the differences in the heights. And, and that's how we get, you know, hey, holy, holy cow, this guy from a static position, this guy's jumping an inch and a half higher than he does off a box. Well, he's obviously got some elasticity issues there. And we kind of group him with that, that group with, with that training yep. program. 
EUR is another one, the eccentric utilization ratio. It's just looking at the counter movement jump height over the squat jump height. That's a really good one. We're actually building a report for that in our system because the, the static jump, squat jump, whatever you want to call it, um, typically the static jump height will not be as high as the, the counter movement jump. And typically the drop jump jump height should be the highest because you're really forcing that stretch shortening cycle to occur very rapidly. Um, really just loading the legs very, very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, athletes that are trained and, and in shape should be able to overcome that and really just produce a ton of force and launch off the ground. But um, really easy way to determine if people are fit or not. It's just having to do a drop jump. That's how I know yeah, I'm out of shape. We, when, when, I, when I first got the Buffalo, um, they had done they had done a lot of a lot of high repetition training, not not a ton of jumping or, or or sprinting. So they just hadn't been exposed to a lot of those elastic properties, and and you just didn't have much exposure to it. And the first time we started doing these R versions of what we call the RSI, just measuring these three different jumps, and we had a large majority of guys that their static jump was equivalent or higher in their counter movement just because there, there was very little rigidity very little reactivity very little elasticity and so we just completely overhauled our program to try to try to correct that um nice. and, and it, it was it was awesome to see because as we did it you, you kind of saw everything start to turn a little bit um well i know we're, we're kind of getting close to that that hour mark where i like to keep these and eric I, I this doesn't necessarily have to do with force plates but i can't not ask you this while i have you on the show um, this is just something that, that I've always thought about NHL. And then in general, when I heard your conversation, your, your talk and coach versus COVID, this is the first thing my brain started spinning on. So I, I really think that you as a strength coach have the largest disadvantage when it comes to training athletes. I just think it's, it's, I, when I think about how much time you have to prepare them and then the, the schedule you have trying to train them around them, my brain explodes just thinking about how I would attempt to do that. Um, but it kind of puts me in the position of what I think about is when we, we go into training camp and we have all of a sudden these, these new movements and these new intensities and these new anxieties, but at the same time, we're trying to maintain this strength because you're talking a month gap that we have to try to maintain everything we busted our butts to, to build the last six, seven months. So if you will put on a, a football coach's strength, strength hat real quick here. And, and if you were in my chair and you were sitting there trying to attack what you would do for training camp and manage that um what what would you what would you do and, and how would you take your experiences in the nhl and, and cross them over yeah i think that you know when you have the ability to monitor the impact of what the programming is i think that's where you can make some of those um, decisions to modify potentially what you're doing or or to keep doing what you what what you've been doing because it's working um, you know, for me, I like to classify our athletes based off of positions and I need to really understand how I'm going to train each position so that they're going to meet those specific physical characteristics that are required to be elite or successful in that position. So for, for me, if I'm going to go into move into football and obviously numbers wise, the roster size is, is drastically higher, right? You guys are obviously dealing with uh, much larger numbers, but I think the nice thing about that is you also have a, a you know a relatively larger staff, and you can diversify that a, a little bit more. So for me, you know, if I look at it, you know, I say our, our centermen are going to train a specific way. You know, I can I can look at at skill group and quarterbacks and say, okay, the quarterbacks are going to train this way because the elite quarterbacks all have this characteristics. So we want to make sure we keep that, 
Now we want those other guys to start to mimic that characteristic that, that are similar to the elite player in that position. So although you have more positional groups and you have a larger group to work with, I think you could still classify those athletes in a similar way. And it doesn't even need to be position specific. I think you can look at guys that need, um, like you said earlier, a better uh, utilization of the stretch shortening cycle. And you can bundle them up in those three different uh, categories and you can train them. And if you look at what those characteristics are, I think you can, you'll start to quickly identify um, what you can do in terms of programming, not only to keep them strong, right? A lineman's always going to have a different physical characteristic than a whiteout, but you may see that they both have a similar weakness and you can have them doing similar movements. Although their positions are different, you're going to have you know, the ability to identify that. So if you can bucket those the way you are, um, that, that's the way I would do it. Now, when I get to training camp, I have all of our uh, NHL players, I have all of our American Hockey League players, and I have all of our prospects. So I, I'm uh, overseeing around 65 guys at training camp. So although that gets whitt uh, whittled down pretty quickly, I am working in that same mindset where I'm, I'm having guys, uh, based off of the information that I can collect at that time, working on specific things. And so, um, you know, again, I think uh, putting them in buckets or classifications it would be the same thing that I would try to do. Obviously, you know, utilizing the staff that you have and utilizing the, the different people in the group. And, um, you know, I think that would be where I would go with it. And I think, you know, you already have a, a really good model. Obviously, if you're, you're putting those guys in buckets and, and trying to understand what they're doing off of dis different movements, I think you're doing, you know, you're doing a lot more than, you know, some people are even with force plates right now. So, um, you know, the, I think the nice thing about it, though, is if you have a tool like this, just like, you know, much like using catapult or heart rate systems, if you can identify what your prescription is actually doing, if it's working or not, then you can keep doing that or you can shift or pivot when you need to. And I think that's really kind of where we've seen some success with, with using the system in our group. No, I, I love that. That's, that's incredible. And Drake, I know I've, I've asked a ton of questions because you kind of live all things force plate. So I've just been firing them away. But um, at this point, Drake, or, or does anybody else have, have questions? Coach Mignotti, Coach Heiss, Coach Boyne, anything for, for Eric or Ben while we have them here? Yeah, I, I certainly got a handful written down first off. I mean, this has been some really, really good dialogue. I, you know, again, appreciate you guys jumping on with this. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask about, so right now with our, with our current sort of circumstance, what we have at UB, I mean, we, we're, we're fortunate that we have jump mats. So we're able to, you know, measure some, certain things. Um, and one of the things that gets brought up is, is looking at a like vertical jump height um, for a readiness measurement tool. And I've, I've spoken with some coaches on it, and it seems like that might not be the most realistic or most reliable uh, measure to see if an athlete is fatigued just because, as, as we've discussed, you know, maybe you change how you jump now. Just, just curious to see if, if uh, we could create some dialogue on maybe what are some better metrics to look at. I mean, I know, Eric, you talked about the, the, the rebound jump, but um, what, what specifically are we looking at um, to gauge readiness based on, based on any sort of jumping protocols? Yeah, I, I mean, as far as like the jump mat and using that for readiness, I think ground contact time could be a value that can provide you with some input. Um, you know, I think having having a good understanding of, you know, how long it's taking that athlete to get off the ground, uh, you know, and just watching that athlete change the strategy potentially to get off the ground quicker. And those are going to be things that you can use with a jump mat. I think you can get RSI from a jump mat now 
um, or yeah, I think so. You can look at, at some of that and 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 decide whether or not you know that RSI value is average or or above or below their average, right? Because it, it's the same thing that we're doing here with our guys. Is are these variables exceeding their average or are they dropping below their average? And if they are, we need to make a decision on, uh, on understanding what we're going to do about that. So I think you can use RSI and the ground contact time variable that you get um, to understand if that's a shift in strategy. And a lot of times you can use your coaching eye to kind of a, uh, to validate that, right? Like if you see a guy that has a normal, you know, quick, real quick dip and then they're very stiff and they drive up really well, but now they're taking a lot more time in the counter movement, those are going to be things that you can observe and you can identify that. And then if you see that number drop off, then you can say, okay, now we need to have a conversation. What's going on? Is this guy fatigued? Is he banged up? You know, we need to understand why we're seeing what we're seeing. So you can, you know, take that strategy and, and that you're observing and, and really see some of the information that you can collect from the jump mat. And like you said, you guys are doing already, you're, you're putting these guys in buckets. So if this guy's normal strategy is in bucket one, and then all of a sudden the variables and the way he looks in terms of the, the, the movement change, he might shift into bucket two, but that needs to be decided on whether that's, you know, because the programming has done the job that you guys have decided it needed to do or because there's some other layer of hidden information that's presenting itself that you guys need to uncover. And that's the same thing that we're doing. Um, and, and because you guys are already putting these guys in these um, classifications, it's, I think you guys have a good, uh, you know, step up on that. When do you guys take your readiness tests, Eric? Like how, how long before game time? And what is your, like, so do you warm them up and then take the readiness test? Is it, hey, you warm yourself up, let me know when you're ready, and then you hop on and jump? How, what's your process protocol for that? Yeah, good question. So, and the way the, the warm-up for hockey is, is that there's a, a countdown clock, right? And there are different things, different times on the clock that they have meetings and things like that. So, t uh, traditionally, you know, guys in, uh, on game days are doing their own warm-up. And so, what I'll let these guys do is they'll, they'll do their own warm-up that, um, that they've pre-selected, that this is their normal routine. And then, once they... Um, you know, once they hit a certain time on the clock that we've kind of designated as their time, I'll jump them. That jump takes about 90 seconds. And then once we see that information, they'll shift into a, a modification to their warm-up or they'll just continue on with what their normal routine was if there's no need. And, you know, like at, at first it's taken me a while to kind of go through these modifications with them, but now they're pretty autonomous. Um, they know if there's a modification that they know what to do now. So... Um, that's the nice thing about the information is that if we use the right language, we describe things the right way, we don't need to hold their hand when, it's, when it comes down to the actual movements that they're doing. So I think that's a, a huge benefit. Um, but we're doing that probably, I would say, if a, if a guy's going to get his gear on, um, you know, we're probably doing that warm up and the jump about a half hour before they're getting their gear on. I wanted to jump in and ask a, another question about the game day stuff because, you know, obviously you have 41 home games and, you know, 41 games on the road. Are, are you traveling this stuff with you? And if not, are you just using trends that you see in the home games to to adapt those certain guys' warm-ups on the road? Yeah, so so I guess one – let me kind of give you a little bit of background on, the, you know, the way the NHL works. So the NHL, uh, every rink has the same setup for equipment. So we know what we're going to have access to. So that's, that's nice. Obviously okay. it's a, it's a much lesser scale than we have access to at home, but I do know I have a barbell. I have a 40 set of 45s, 25s. I have some kettlebells some power blocks. So I know I'm going to have this, this uh, equipment. 
So what we've done is we've scaled our, our warm up at home so that we can make that uh, warm up, uh, that keep the continuity from that warm up at home to uh, the warm ups that we're doing on the road. So we've, we've modified our warm ups to the point where we can do them at, at any location. Um, to answer your first question, our, because our plates are portable, they don't require any sort of outlet to plug into to run them. I charge them in my hotel room. I put them in a, a case and we put it under our plane with our other equipment. And then when I get to my hotel room at night, uh, I'll charge those. I'll bring them to the rink in the morning and guys can jump. And because I have a, a phone, especially a, a mobile device that I, I test with, I just have my computer open and so they can see the scores on the cloud. So I can just do that in any part of the, the rink that I need to. And I typically... I'll set those up in the morning so they have a little bit of time to settle to the flooring and I'll leave them there and we'll, we'll jump guys the same way that we do at home. Plus one Hawking Dynamics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, what, what else? Uh, Drake, you have anything else or anything that you can think of that we should cover? Uh, yeah, this is kind of a question I had when Eric was talking about the guy that uh, kind of gets overexcited um, you kind of talk about there's two different types of athletes, one that really needs to get amped up for the, the match and then the one that kind of just needs to chill out and relax and kind of get in their own head. Um, do you see like a, a fine line of readiness when you are jumping your athletes? Like if they're almost jumping too well or their numbers are too good, what does their performance look like? Is there like a, a middle 80% that you see in your readiness metrics that like that's when they kind of perform their best? On the, on the in the rink yeah let me I'll, let me share a screen with you guys here real quick so you guys can just I can kind of talk through it um, yeah I mean that that's uh, that's exactly kind of what we're describing here so you know for example when we see our athletes jump we look at uh, the information that's on package we look at the averages for that individual because we want to make sure that we're understanding what they're actually doing that day and it, you know a peak just like you're testing in one RM they might have a great one RM testing day, so the numbers are going to get elevated. Now, a guy that's that's normally pretty good, but has a depressed day, comes in and he has a lower score. You know, those those percentages are going to obviously be affected. So we want to make sure that we're looking at our averages for our individual guys, so that we can understand. You know, if we see something that's you know very high or very low, we know that that's probably something we need to you know talk about. So if we look at this uh, this image here, the guy on the bottom is actually the guy we're, we're you know I'm talking about here. So Typically, you know, his general average need is uh, propulsive force production. So we need to see him create more relative propulsive force. So per kilogram of body weight, we want to see him produce more. Now, on game days, that number is like a 90. So, like, we see that number rise all the time on game days because he's actually overexcited. He's creating, like, this super ballistic movement strategy. And so we see that rise. Everything else stays really consistent. Uh, breaking rate of force goes up a little bit and stiffness, which is a variable that um, that I'm using quite often now to kind of talk about that amortization phase between breaking and propulsion. It's kind of that window that we don't, you know, doesn't really often get touched on in terms of uh, force plate uh, information. You know, that variable goes through the roof because his changes, his movement strategy has changed. The counter movement depth has changed and the force at the bottom of that counter movement depth has changed. It's gone through the roof. And so we see that variable with him. And so we know with him, we need to, to calm that um, that system down, that nervous system, because he's he's overexcited, and because the, the the physical requirements for him to be elite in his position is something that looks more like this, 
we knew we needed to make some sort of change there. So when we started doing this counter movement rebound on game days, we, we were able to identify that. And on a, on a normal day, his numbers look like this. Like they're not even close to being different. It's like almost identical every time we jump, except on game days. So that was why we wanted to start to identify how we can not only make guys, you know, ramp them up. You know, most of the time it's like we need to ramp a guy up. I can't, I, I got to get my legs going. I need, I need more jump, whatever they're, you know, whatever they want to say. We, we knew we needed to do that. But with this guy, it was like, holy cow, we need to down tick this guy a little bit so that he can actually start the game on time. It doesn't take seven or eight shifts or even a whole period to start playing the right way. And so that was, you know, that was what we started to look at. Um, and because we have the counter movement jump information in front of us on a regular basis, that, that information from the counter movement rebound, it was super easy to correlate. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's just a matter of taking that information and understanding what your normal averages are for your guys. But because we were able to do that, we were able to score that right away. We can also see the force tracing here. Sometimes you might see this guy's force tracing look more like this guy up here, where you see that, right? That's what that force tracing ends up looking like for this athlete. So, you know, on a game day, that number spikes through the roof for the guy below. And so we see that force tracing change as well. So the strategy that we're observing, the numbers we're observing, and the way this athlete's actually jumping and, and actually creating output change. And so that's what really sparked that, uh, that idea to, to shift what we were doing to uh, become more specific for that individual group that wanted to go through this testing on game days. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's super valuable is that um, a lot of people just associate readiness with um, a higher jump height, a higher, uh, a better time to take off, like that just correlates with a better performance on the field in the, in the rink, but it's not always the case, as you just said. I think, I think that's very valuable to point out. Yeah, I mean, like one thing too, I mean, if you, I didn't really discuss it, but like on that uh, image, I don't actually have jump heights at all. Like our athletes, you know, on game days or, or even on practice days when we're jumping, they're not really as concerned with their jump height as they are with what that graphical representation looks like from last time we jumped to, to that current day. So because we've tried to really dial in on the language we use with our athletes and what those variables mean, we really have some solid buy-in from the guys in terms of what that profile looks like rather than what that product is of the jump height because they're really now uh, good at understanding that the strategy that they're taking to create the jump height is much more valuable for us than the product itself right if we see a guy you guys see guys run right like your coach is like this guy's this guy's slow okay yeah like well, i can see that yeah i know that but if we can understand what part of slow that guy actually is we can actually make an impact on that athlete you know same thing with our guys oh this guy looks slow on the ice yeah like duh. i can i can see that he's not coming in at the top five or six guys but can we identify where he's slow in the i think more importantly can we identify if this is a capacity issue? Is, the, is there some issue with his capacity in terms of creating forces, dissipating forces, or is it a skill issue? Is this guy just not a great runner or is this guy just not a great skater? Then we're really dealing with another whole type of intervention that we have to address. So I think to have, to have this sort of objectivity to the information we can collect and then blending it with our coaching eye and that kind of subjective interpretation of, of what's important for our athletes in the sports that they play, we can really make some big impacts on these guys. That's awesome. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, really, really, really good stuff. And I'm excited because I, you know, 
I didn't want this to end up just being a you know sixty minute lecture about force plates, but I think this is from the from a from a practical uh, applicable uh, from a standpoint of getting a you know Ben you knocked out of the part with just kind of a baseline knowledge of what it is, and I think we even touched on a little bit of giving some guys some solutions to how to use this this ideology without necessarily having them as well. So. All, all around that that's awesome we're, we're kind of at that 60 minute mark where i know you know all the the youth of generation z and millennials can't pay attention anymore so this is usually where i like to to sign off um but you know eric ben i really really appreciate you guys taking the time and, and coming on the show today and uh once again guys if you enjoyed the show and you listened uh we you know we ask that you do go to that coaches versus covid19.com check out that gofundme and give anything you can uh, anybody listening out there that's involved or, or works with or owns a company if you're interested in, in sponsoring any of the future episodes please let us know but that is officially episode one of eight very excited to kick this thing off the right way awesome job thank you so much eric for your time ben thank you so much for your time as well thanks a lot man happy to do it man yeah, yeah thanks for having us it was awesome